You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience here at Conservative Review's Northern Command on Wednesday, May the 29th, the last Wednesday in May. Gosh, we're almost halfway done this year. So much time has passed by and so little has gotten done. I don't know if I'm being a little bit too rough on my colleagues. Tell me if you believe I am. But I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. I just don't understand why some of them exist. There's no continuity of observations, trains of observations. It's almost like they start off every day with a clean slate. Like there was no before and after. And they just react to whatever they see in the news. Just here's my talking point for today. But there's no understanding like, dude, um, you understand that we're going backwards on all these issues? Do you follow up on yesterday, last month? And that's what we try to do here. We try to have continuity of observations on all the important issues or as many of them as, as we could tackle. Admittedly, there's tons of stuff I have on my list I never get around to. I'm just one man, but that's the thing. There's so much that needs to be done. There's so many avenues that could be carved out for so many policy entrepreneurs in this business to expose, whether it's from a policy end, from a journalistic end. I'm really struggling to find anywhere where anyone is trying to seize the moment. I really am. Like I said, it's a movement that's just looking for talking points rather than policies. So let's finish off some of the stuff from yesterday and further develop this thought I've had this week that if you look at the opportunities, the leverage points, the points of contention, the junctions in the road, everything boils down to one thing. The president's power to use three tools, the veto pen, the bully pulpit, and inherent executive action, executive powers. Remember those three things. You could add a fourth thing, getting involved in primaries, but that really is part of the bully pulpit because if the president has a bully pulpit to influence all Americans, boy, does he certainly have that bully pulpit to influence Republican voters and primaries. And in each one of them, we should have a hundred conservative consciences calling the balls and strikes, trying to forge a path ahead, understanding the mix of the political opportunities with ultimately the policy ends that we want, not just as a means, that would be a movement, but we don't have one. So we're trying to uh, make up for, for the lost ground here. 
So one of the things I wanted to piggyback off uh, on the on the bully pulpit. The president has a tremendous bully pulpit. He has the single largest bully pulpit in the country. He probably has the biggest bully pulpit of any president in the United States, given who he is and his personality and his ability to command media attention on what he says. So he has the ability to drive a narrative, to widen that Overton window of what is acceptable, what we strive for to get through that window of conservative policy outcomes. And we, in turn, have the ability to influence him in using that. But there's too few of us doing that. And I just want to return to, you know, at least to start off before we get into immigration, which really is just unbelievable. It's unbelievable that we are almost a year into this invasion, really a year and a half, but a year that, that it's been so severe Months into the precipice of Border Patrol themselves saying they're beyond broken. And we just sit and and do nothing as if it's normal. Could you imagine if he would have embarked on the mechanical steps of the policies as well as the bully pulpit messaging mixed with the veto threats of the various must-pass budget bills, supplemental bills, backed by the threat of executive action a year ago, a year and a half ago when I called for this stuff, when I called for getting rid of DACA, even following the court's administration, uh, APA Administrative Policy Act uh, procedure, he shouldn't have to do it, but okay, fine, do it. Takes 90 days. A 212F shutoff. Designating the cartels as terrorists and freeing up the military to go after them. Designated MS-13 as terrorists, thereby forcing all local law enforcement to deal with them in a very different way than they're dealing with them now. Slam dunk issues. You can't argue on these issues. But no. Nothing. I want to revisit that to give you the latest on what I'm hearing on on the border. But, But I want to start off with crime. And again, when we're talking about the federal criminal justice system, as you all know, so so much of it is driven by immigration because indeed 43% of all federal offenders are foreign nationals. The president made news, and it's continuing to make a little bit of news, moving that Overton window to the left, using his bully pulpit to now say that the right-wing president, or he's perceived as such, He believes the 1994 Crime Act was a disaster, and we need criminal justice reform. And I'm getting messages from people I'm seeing, no, you don't understand, the president is so clever, he's trying to tamp down a black turnout for Biden. Like, what? No, it it doesn't work that way, buddy. You are permanently seeding that ground. You never win by publicly talking down a conservative policy rather than bolstering it. Everyone in this country wants law and order. Most people do. We still have the silent majority behind that. It's funny. They put out from the Trump pact that they're targeting blacks, Hispanics, and suburban women. Now, look, I'm, I'm all for 
messaging all conservative policy to everyone, which I believe resonates with most people across the board if we properly and consistently and principally pursued it. But you know when it comes from Republicans, when they say, oh, we're going to target a specific group, no good ever comes out from that because it means pandering to left-wing policies. When they say getting Hispanics, they mean what? They mean amnesty. When they say getting blacks, they mean a week on crime, which is nonsense. You're not going to get anyone. The type of blacks that would be into being weak on crime are the ones who will never vote for you. Never, ever. The ones who you could possibly maybe get into your court, move the vote from, let's say, a 7% voting Republican to 15%, the extent you could do that, it would be the people that are threatened with public safety. You know, I'll never forget when we've had a couple of town halls in the Baltimore area um, about crime. It's mainly mainly whites turning out, but you did have a significant amount of blacks. They're usually more elderly blacks that, that turned out, and they are very scared about it. I would bet you anything, almost all of them vote Democrat. But believe me, if you would have a message of clamping down on crime, that's the way to get that, that vote. And, and, and it's that window of people that will vote for you anyway. I mean, everyone agrees. No one's going to sit and tell you that you're going to get 51% of the black vote voting Republican. You know, it would take 200 years to get there. It's just never, it's not going to happen. But I think the idea would be, you know, you get an extra 5 7%. Well, you get that by doing the right thing. Just last night, we heard uh, on, on, on social media, just a mile and a half away from where I live, there are two armed robberies. Because as you well know, in this area, only criminals could carry guns. And, you know, it's, it's scary. It's really scary around here. But Trump has the opportunity to tell the truth on this issue. It's not that hard. You know why it's not that hard? Because before Kushner and the Kochs got a hold of him, he actually used his bully pulpit. He put out on Twitter in 2013, sadly, the overwhelming amount of violent crime in our major cities is committed by blacks and Hispanics, a tough subject that must be discussed. When it comes to violent crime, and if we are going to solve the problem, we must stop being so politically correct, must tell it like it is. Likewise, the primary victims of violent crimes are in the African-American and Hispanic communities. These people want law and order now. I'm not... I'm not inventing the wheel here. I mean, it's nothing Trump himself didn't say before. So for these idiots, these idiot Trump butt lickers who aren't into principle, they're into Trump. Ironically, they're stupid because they're not into Trump because the true Trump instinctively is what he said before. Everyone knows that. The idea is to do what's right, but if but if it's a race just to see who could kiss Trump's rear end more, I'm actually the only one who's upholding Trump's original focus on crime. You all are upholding Kushner and the Kochs and the very people, the very globalists we supposedly ran against. But it's very simple here. There are so many lies about this. The crime bill did not... Lock up a bunch of blacks for nothing. The crime bill, in fact, it spawned the most successful drop in crime 
about 70% reduction in homicides and violent crime from the early 90s until roughly 2015 when in many major cities, it started going back the other way. You know why? Because we have weaker policing now, shorter sentencing, more jailbreak. Certainly on the front end, we're locking up fewer people. But the reality is, the reality is, the black incarceration rate has been going down throughout almost the entire period of time when the three strikes and your outlaw was in operation. And the biggest beneficiaries of them were potential black victims who were never victimized. This is the data you will not hear elsewhere. Let's first just start off with, there's a group of um, criminologists who have been writing for the Washington Post for, for a little while. Charles Lane and uh, what's this other guy? His partner, Keith Humphreys. I'm going to cite a couple of things from them. But one thing they point out, and this was a few years ago already, he said this. Blacks make up about 37.5% of all state prisoners. About triple their share of the population as a whole. Now, mind you, they commit about six to seven times the violent crime. So they really have an under-incarceration problem, but that's a different story. But he noted that if we released all 208,000 people currently in state prison on drug charges, so forget about federal prison. We know it's very much driven by Hispanics, actually, and those working for the cartels, those subcontracting for the cartels, the worst of the worst. But even on a state level, Oh, Daniel, surely we're locking up too many people and it's affecting African-Americans on a state level. If we, if we literally legalized all drugs, and I mean fentanyl-laced cocaine and fentanyl-laced meth and heroin, and we never had a single drug offense and didn't lock up a single person for a single drug offense, blacks would go from 37.5% of all state prisoners to 37.1% essentially unchanged. Because the reality is that they have consistently accounted for roughly 40% of violent crime arrests. And when I say violent crime, that's not including drugs, which often is inherently violent. Here's the reality. In 2017... 1,272 more black people were killed by homicide than white people. There were 7,851 black homicide victims, 6,579 white ones. That is simply astounding given that blacks compose just 13% of the population. Yet, it's like, I don't know, 18% more of homicide victims than whites. It's unbelievable. Of the 11,883 homicide offenders whose race is known, again, this is the last year of FBI uniform crime reporting, a whopping 54% were black, 43% were white. And I guess that includes Hispanics and it's included in white. 54% were black. 
and in cases where the race of both the victim and offender were known, a staggering 88.4% of black homicide victims were murdered by black offenders. This is just for murder. In 2012, that's the last year where the FBI broke down the race of other arrests. So you have to go back a little further, but it's likely the same thing now. African-Americans accounted for 32.9% of those arrested for rape, 55% of those arrested for robbery, and 34.1% of those arrested for aggravated assault. Again, that is astounding. Again, blacks are 13% of the population, yet they account for 54% of all homicide offenders and victims, for that matter, 55% of robbery offenders, 33% of rape offenders, and 34% of assault offenders. And remember, not nearly every murderer winds up in prison. Just in one year, 6,013 murder cases were uncleared. 79,310 rape cases, 206,091 robbery cases, 349,190 aggravated assault cases were all uncleared. Thus, even if we put every drug trafficker back on the street, if we only successfully convicted every murderer and every other violent offender, there would be hundreds of thousands of more people in prison. And most of them would be black. That's the reality. The reality is our system is lenient on everyone, but they're particularly lenient on blacks because they're so worried about it. But again, who does it hurt the most? Who does who does it hurt the most being weak on it? It hurts blacks. And that's the reality. Meaning even since we so-called locked up a bunch of people, the rate of black incarceration has plummeted over this very period. It has plummeted. Now you might ask, well, how is that? The answer is very simple. Because most blacks at the end of the day are like anyone else. They're law-abiding, hardworking people. The rate of criminality is much higher among them than, than, let's say, whites. But still, most people aren't criminals. Most people are law-abiding. So by you mollycoddling that minority of black criminals, you are hurting blacks the most. The 1994 crime law benefited them, and it didn't lock them up in droves. That's the big lie. It locked up the bad people. It worked. Think about this. Think about the beauty of the system. The beauty of this. Let's get the numbers here. So, um, again, these guys, Keith Humphreys notes in the Washington Post that incarceration of 18 and 19-year-olds has declined 40% from 2003 to 2013. And we know a lot of those youths are black. 40% the incarceration rate. Meaning, so you can't just look at those currently in prison serving sentences, but you have to look at the front end that prospectively we're, we're not initially locking them up anymore. 
declined 40% from 2003 to 2013. And over the last five years, I know the culture of jailbreak has increased even more. Yet it's not enough for these guys. He wrote an article last month noting the broad decline in incarceration in recent years, but that the black rate of decline is outpacing that of whites. According to Humphreys and Lane, quote, the African-American male imprisonment rate has dropped by a third since its peak. A third since its peak and is now at a level not seen since 1991. So it makes no sense. The entire baseline has been wiped out, and that's with the three strikes and your outlaw in place. African-American women's rate of imprisonment has dropped 57% from its peak and is now at a 30-year low. So the entire thing is a lie. It's a lie. It's demonstrably a lie. So the black rate of incarceration is now much lower than their rate of criminality. That's the reality. Do you want to know the benefits? I'm going to read you some benefits. So a couple of things. This is 2008 data, so it's old. But, um, you know, it's likely the same point now. In general, the black victimization of homicide, meaning where blacks are victims of homicide, was six times higher than the rate of whites. They are victims six times more. But the rate of black offenders is seven times higher than that of whites. But listen to this. This is from the, from the Bureau of Justice Statistics. In 2008, the homicide victimization rate for blacks was 19.6 per 100,000, right? For whites, it was 3.3. So it's a lot, but still. Do you know what it was in 1991? 39.4. More than double. So over the life of the 94 criminal act, uh, uh, crime bill, the so-called tough-on-crime re- regime of the 90s at a federal level, state level, it resulted in having cutting the black homicide rate in half. This is what they won't tell you, and this is what the president could use his bully pulpit for. That's the reality. That is the reality. The offending rate for blacks, this is on the offender side, homicide offenders, was 24 per per 100,000 in 2004. Do you know what it was before the crime bill? 51.1. Again, it was cut in less than half. Do you know why? Because they took the bad blacks off the street, just like they took the bad whites and the bad everyone else off the streets. As many of them as they could. So you know what you have less of? Dead blacks. Dead everyone, but certainly more pronounced. Because that's who it hurts the most. This is the big lie on crime. Nowhere is this more evident than in a place like Baltimore, where I live. 
None other than Martin freaking O'Malley, as late as the early 2000s, was arresting people aggressively in the city. And you know what? It kept the homicide rate between 35 to 40 per 100,000. Now it's at 57.8. The highest rate, uh, uh, sorry, the highest rate in the nation, higher than that of El Salvador. Who does it hurt? Again, I'll tell you, it, it's coming close to me. You get larcenies, you get carjackings, you get even armed robberies. But in terms of the dead bodies, it's almost all blacks in urban areas. I mean, the case, Trump made this case before. I'm not saying anything new here. And again, especially when you're talking about at a federal level and federal drug trafficking, which is going to net so much MS-13 and transnational gangs. Think about a little bit farther south. We talked about this a lot last week. Prince George's County, Maryland. Prince George's County, Maryland was the plot pride of the black community in Maryland. It was a middle class um majority African-American county that over the last two decades has been flooded with Central Americans, El Salvadorans, and with that, MS-13. What are the weak on crime regime, what is that going to do to blacks in PG County? It keeps MS-13 in business. We saw just last week, two guys picked up on MS-13-related attempted first-degree murder, attempted second-degree murder, conspiracy to commit murder, participation in gang activity and other related charges. They were released. Not just in defiance of an ICE detainer, even if they would have been Americans, meaning it was weak. On, it was being weak on immigration, but it was also being weak on crime in general. Forget about their immigration status. How could anyone be picked up on attempted first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder for MS-13, be let go within months to commit another murder. I'll tell you how. It's the criminal justice reform crap being pushed by the Heritage Foundation, by the Kochs, all these phony conservative outlets in addition to the left. Frankly, they're all a bunch of leftists. They are to the left of where Martin O'Malley was 15 freaking years ago, even less. And those are the results. They will not lock up juveniles. Who is harmed the most by that? This is the side of it they won't look at. First of all, it's a lie. We didn't even lock up that many. The African-American incarceration rate has been plummeting for most of the time of the 94 crime bill. But the African-American victimization has plummeted during the entire regime of the 94 crime bill. Let's not lie here. Again, never forget the reality is, the reality is that the overwhelming majority, you have 13% of the population, but they account for 54% of the 54% of, of the murders. They account for 55% of robberies. 33% of rape and 34% of assault. But again, most of the victims themselves are black. 
And it's not the whole 13% committing them. It's a tiny fraction of them. So you are hurting beyond everyone else. Again, you're supposed to do public policy. You're supposed to do justice and equality. You do the crime, you do the time. Done. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. I don't care what the statistics are. Let the chips fall where they may. Yes, you will have more blacks locked up for violent crime than Jews. I'm, I'm sorry. like That's just how it is. You'll have more blacks playing sports than Jews. You'll have, you know, you'll have more blacks locked up than Japanese. That's just how it is. There's nothing we can do about that for now. Got to fix the social problems first. But but the sad thing is, if you're obsessed with a talking point, oh, I want to get the black vote based on really, you're hurting blacks more than anyone else. That is the case the president needs to give. And again, some might say, well, Daniel, um, you know, you're saying they're disproportionately arrested, but who says they committed the crimes? Maybe that's just because our bias. We just grabbed them off. The- that's nonsense. Heather McDonald of the Manhattan Institute wrote in her must-read book, The War on Cops, that the statistics on the race of criminals as reported by crime victims matches the arrest data. Dating back to 1978, a study of robbery and aggravated assault in eight cities found parity between the race of assailants in victim reports and in arrests. A finding replicated many times across a range of crimes. Everyone knows there is an under-incarceration problem in general and particularly among blacks. Okay? That is just straight-up reality. But what that causes is, is, an, is, is an over-victimization of blacks as well. In just three tweets I read to you from Trump in 2013, he understood what I just gave over in 20 minutes. But that's what happens when you have a movement that just grabs on, has no beliefs. Trump could have said the opposite and indeed said the opposite and indeed still instinctively believes in that. But the minute he says the other way, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we need to get the black vote. Uh, we need to, uh, you know, uh, Biden will shoot tough on crime. Our uh, conservatives. This is how pathetic this movement has become. But again, this is also the power of the bully pulpit. The president could break this issue wide open. I've said before, if he runs a campaign on safety and security, which he kind of touches on before he contradicts himself, mixing in immigration and gangs and drugs to domestic crime and law and order and locking up bad guys, he could realign American politics tomorrow. And boy, oh boy, that's how you get the suburban vote. Just so stupid all around. I care too much. I can't be more pro-Trump than Trump himself is. So that's with that. Let's go back to the border on what's going on there. You know, I just got finished speaking with a Border Patrol agent this morning. And the conversation obviously was, you know, mainly off the record, um, deep background. There's a Border Patrol agent in Texas 
who has significant military career as well. So he understands what a military issue is. And he tells me that what's happening at the border now, what he sees in, in Texas with CDN and the Gulf Cartel, it's an insurgency. It's exactly what he saw in Iraq and Afghanistan, except here it actually matters because it's actually on our soil. And to me, one of the areas where Trump has failed the most to employ the bully pulpit and executive power is by both making it and messaging it as a military threat, a national security threat. It's not an immigration issue. When the Border Patrol started in 1924, yesterday they celebrated their 95th anniversary. It passed May 28th, the Department of Labor Appropriations Bill. That's when they started the Border Patrol and told them they had uh, mounted, you know, these ad hoc groups of mounted patrolmen um, who weren't really, you know, didn't really get federal resources uh, because, you know, they were only having problems at the land border fairly recently at that time. For most of our history, they just came to the seaports. So that's where they had the inspectors. But it was mainly Chinese workers, Chinese laborers who were trying to skirt the Chinese Exclusion Act. But that's why we had the Border Patrol. It was just immigrant, you know, illegal immigrants, whatever coming. You didn't have anything on the other side like, oh, the most violent, dangerous cartels that are inextricably involved in the worst crime, drugs, gangs, and everything bringing into the country. And yet still, their mission was very clear to detain, deter, and deport. There was no, there was no, no, no other job. Yet yesterday, Border Patrol announced the creation of a new position to help process and babysit the catch and relief and, and release. And to me, the fact that the president hasn't given an update every single week, a highly tele, you know, publicized, televised speech, speaking about the national security problems at the border, he should be getting daily presidential briefings much more robust than what I have. And what I have alone would be game changers. And it's the same thing with these phony conservative talk show hosts. They have a lot... <clears throat> you know, a, a, a much bigger reach than I do, there's no reason why they shouldn't be working on more robust sources than I have and blowing the reality at the border sky high. You can make a name for yourself, you can get publicity, and actually do something good for the cause. Instead, you go to the head of, you know, headlines at Drudge today, which pretty much directs the arc of much of talk radio, it's Mueller. It's every time Mueller opens his mouth, it's Mueller. So what this agent told me, I mean, it was a very depressing conversation. So typically when I get done with people, they're like, Daniel, now I'm thoroughly depressed. That's usually my job. I was actually more depressed after speaking to him. So a number of things he told me, he said, what they're having now is every time there's a battle with the cartels, Or 
the Mexican Marines get sent in to battle them. And they're on the losing side of it. They all come north because otherwise they're going to get killed. Meaning Texas is now the refuge for losing elements. So if you have a Miguel Aleman, Tamaulipas, where CDN is beating the stuffing out of the, out of the Gulf there, which they are, you'll have elements of the Gulf cartel, which you're seeing pop up now on our side of the border. <laughs> Talk about asylum. I mean, it, it literally, literally, we have asylum of cartel warfare coming to our border now. He sent me videos of them seeing them just run run over into Star County near McAllen. They have this all the time. And that as a, a young patrol agent, his hands are tied left and right. They are put in the most dangerous, precarious situations behind the brush around the river where they can't see what's ahead of them. And they know there's bad stuff going down. And they are just sitting ducks. The only thing probably saving them now is that the cartels don't directly want to elicit the response that we should have, but we're not doing. So they don't want to push it, push their luck. But it doesn't take much to have one rogue guy to accidentally kill one of these agents. They cannot do anything. So I said to him, okay, but then shouldn't the military be doing this? And he's like, exactly. I served in the military. This is what the military is for. The president has failed to make the case. And again, you want to talk about executive action. Tomorrow, he has the most robust authority to designate CDN and the Gulf Cartel as terrorists. Chip Roy wrote the letter asking the State Department to do that. Why has that not been done? That opens up SOCOM, you know, special operations, many other aspects to go after them. That orients our entire thinking towards a military operation. Then he could build up the military, use them differently. I don't understand if the Taliban were using a flow of a controlled flow of several hundred thousand migrants to strategically screw up our soldiers. Would we treat that like an immigration issue? Or would we treat that like warfare? But somehow, when it's on our own soil, nothing. The problem is, it's a gray zone. You have black zone and white zone. Black zone is hot combat. White zone is peace. Gray zone is this subtlety. The cartels know to go up to the line, but they don't quite quite cross it because they know we're cowards. Then he spoke a lot about what, I, what we've, we've talked about on this show a lot, a very disturbing cultural pattern in the Rio Grande Valley. And some of these counties all across our border divide and conquer that the cartels have basically bought out with their culture. That he says there's so many problems with communications they have to worry about. They don't have any support from the locals. He says his, his kids get picked on because he's not a, you know, he's Caucasian and he's not from the area. He moved there to be an agent after he uh, left active duty in the military. I mean, he joined the Texas National Guard as part-time too. But his kids get picked on 
and there's a tremendous culture where they either don't know, they know and they don't care, or they downright, depending on who they are, support the cartels. He talked about this music festival, this 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 outlet, this music outlet that is literally banned in Tijuana because they're in with Sinaloa, yet they're welcome in Star and Hidalgo counties. That's a very disturbing problem at our border. And he compared it a lot to the insurgency. Remember, the big problem in Iraq was that you, know, you had insurgent groups, but then you had a population that sustained it. That's part of the problem now. See, there's conservative Americans, there's li- liberal Americans, and then there's Americans bought out by the Mexican culture of the cartels. See, even in liberal areas, I mean, if you had where I live in Baltimore County, this degree of cartel activity, the people wouldn't tolerate it. Which is why, like I said last week, when you had the proposed dumping in Palm Beach and Broward counties, heavy Democrat counties, even the Democrat officials are like, we're not doing that here. But what's, what the problem is that the initial dumping and the initial cartel activity is in the border counties, and the border counties are already bought off, and they just don't care. They've culturally been annexed by Mexico. Now, it's a very, very scary thought. I asked him, I said, well, I said, aren't most of the people down there Mexican descent? They're not Central American. And I thought, you know, the same way there, a lot of them are racist and they don't like the gringo. They don't like a Central American. So, you know, how is it different than the people in Tijuana that didn't want anything to do with the Central Americans? You know, why would they support this? And what he told me was that it's a different story there. When they're on their own turf, and this is Mexico, yeah, they don't want anyone messing with it, whether it's the gringo, whether it's uh, Central Americans. But if they're on, you know, American territory, where they've, you know, they have this chip on their shoulder with this whole gringo business, then they're going to align closer with the Central Americans and, you know, accuse Border Patrol of being racist. And then you have elements of Border Patrol that are now kind of infiltrated by that, which is another very unsettling thought. That's what he told me. I mean, they have, they're getting slammed. You know, I said they, um, every once in a while, the Mexicans send out, you know, we, we do have cooperation with the Mexicans, but regular roving bands of Mexican military, if they're in the area, they're cartel. If we ask them to do an operation, they'll bring in the, the Mexican Marines. Even then, he said they're very careful when they work with them, but they're less compromised than the Mexican military. And recently, they had a group of several hundred they saw coming up near Miguel Aleman, and they asked their, you know, the liaisons working with the Mexicans and Border Patrol asked them to come out and, and deal with it. Guess what? They, um, this was by the Anzal Duas Bridge. I can't even pronounce it. I'm, I'm so bad. Um, it's, uh, it's actually further east near Mission, Texas. So the Mexicans sent out the military. They got ambushed by the Gulf cartel. 
Why am I telling you this? Because they weren't pushing any loads. This wasn't a drug case. This is just a hundred or so migrants. Yet the, the cartel, the migration is so much a part of their tradecraft now, just as much as the drugs, that they're going to defend that territory. And they ambush the Mexican soldiers over it. You think like, what do they care? It's a bunch of migrants. It's not like they're drug load. No. So you see that the migrants are being fully pushed by the cartels. I mean, this is what I don't understand. I mean, even if you would believe that we have an obligation to grant asylum to bogus asylees and any invader and any whatever, but this is no longer governed by immigration law. This is straight up warfare. It's straight up national security. It's just that it's a 21st century style invasion. They're going to be very careful. They're not going to send, you know, 500 cartel members in a military, you know, uh, brigade to come attack us. They're not that stupid. They're going to weaponize the migrants in a way that distracts, ties down our agents, and they get in their people. And he said that they now have, because they have a lot of technology at the border now, they now have sensors that go off all the time. All these getaways, they, they, they can't even get to them. They cannot get to them. So, um, this is happening all the time. Bad stuff, bad stuff is happening around Falcon Lake. All sorts of cartel activity. The cartels are invading us with bad guys that we are going to suffer from them for years to come. Forget about an even 1182F shutoff. Just deploying the military, designating them as the cartels terrorists, which he should have done when I asked him to do it. And by now, he could have easily built the case. Will not do that. Will not message it. Part of the problem is I doubt the president. I really do doubt he even knows a lot of this. That's why I'm going to try to put this out. Hopefully it'll get to him. And to the extent I could put some of this out. But he should be getting these briefings every day from the line agents. And he should be messaging this every day of the week. This is a hundred zero issue. Well, I guess outside of the Rio Grande Valley population. But anywhere else in this country is a complete winning issue. But here we are. 2,200 migrants were caught on Memorial Day just in the El Paso sector alone. Think about that. 2,200. On Memorial Day, when we commemorate the sacrifice for our country, people dying to defend our country, yet what is there to defend? And they still refuse to treat this as an assault, as an invasion. Go after the smugglers, go after the cartels. And then on the immigration front, so look, they're building, the military is building tent cities in, um, 
in a couple of places that will house now up to 7,500. So like, all right, that's already a significant amount of numbers. But our idea was that they would house the family units there so they could contain them and have a rocket docket and get them out within a couple of days. Instead, instead, it's all for single adults. It's for single adults. That's what they're using it for. They're telling people, you come here with a family unit, you're here to stay. That's what this administration has laid down. It's unbelievable. And you know what? Like I tell you, it's not just Central Americans. Everyone has gotten this message. Border Patrol announced just yesterday 15 Congolese were caught at um at Eagle Pass. It's a little bit farther north in Texas. And the funny thing is they noted that there were five men, five women, and five children. What does that tell you? It's such a perfect charade that each one had one kid. Like you'd think statistically, you come with family, some are going to have three or four or five, some will have one, some will have zero. No. Each one had the minimum amount that they needed, which tells you this entire thing is a scam. We refuse to call it out as a prima facie scam, prima facie invasion. We refuse to treat it as a military issue. This is the big problem. This is the big problem here. And then, of course, as you well know, Congo is experiencing the worst Ebola outbreak like ever. Our laws say that these people are inadmissible. I mean, <sighs> if, if I had to conjure up an issue that touches on fears, fears, because fear is the biggest motivator of an electorate, fears of swing voters that resonate with everyone, crime, cartels, drugs, gangs, diseases. The speeches write themselves, the press releases write themselves, the campaign ads produce themselves. Where is that bully pulpit? Where is the executive actions designed to deter, defend, demagnetize our 10-point plan? Where's the leverage of the veto pen threatening to veto this budget bill? If not the emergency one, this uh, the disaster rate, at least the September 30th budget bill. He should already be building that case if he doesn't plan on doing anything for the next few months anyway. I can't do his job for him. But all I could do is speak the truth and, and call the plays and hope someone latches onto it. This is just unbelievable. The morale of our agents, it's in the toilet. There's no sense of mission. And again, it's not just, oh, that you know they were meant to patrol, but they've become babysitters. It's almost the same thing with our military. We're doing social work and, and nation building, but it's worse than that. We're doing social work and nation building in a combat zone. It's the same thing here. They're doing babysitting in a in what's essentially a combat zone. The only slight difference is 
that the cartels aren't yet directly targeting the agents. But only because they don't want to solicit a reaction. But do we really want to wait until they're powerful enough and have so much control and influence in the Rio Grande Valley and other places, culturally, economically, politically, militarily, that we will no longer have the ability to counter them? Just unbelievable. And could you imagine what's getting in with the checkpoints down in a place like New Mexico? So the Rio Grande Valley, they're 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 still there, thankfully. Yesterday, Border Patrol announced they caught thirty-eight um migrants, you know, who are hiding. People forget that the checkpoints are not drug checkpoints. They're um I mean they might catch drugs. They're immigration checkpoints. You know, they see suspicious activity. They'll move up and deal with it. All that suspicious activity, you see what they caught in the RGV. Well, in New Mexico, all those checkpoints are down. And remember, another thing he, uh, this agent was very into is that he said, you know we're not having any border walls in the RGV. Because as we warned, we were the first ones to warn that stupid omnibus bill they passed in February when Trump signed away his leverage, he signed away his life, and conservative, phony, phony, faggot, phony conservative, fake conservative, loser conservative media that's not conservative in any any stretch of the uh, imagination. I'm just so flustered here. Because they're such a numbskull losers. Oh, this is great. Yeah, it, it only allowed construction in the RGV, which is an area bought out by the cartels where they gave the political leadership veto power. So guess what? They're vetoing it. Because as much as it won't stop the lawfare, it will stop some of the cartel activity. So they can't have that, of course. And and then, um, you know what else? How bad it is. The State Department designated Tamaulipas as a, th- a stage, uh, a level four threat. There's certain, like, you know, travel warnings. They give you what sort of threat. Because Tamaulipas is just full, you know, cartel warfare. So, the people in McAllen, the politicians, they lobbied the State Department to downgrade it. That's how bought out by the cartels they are. It's a very big problem down there. This is exactly what calls for federal activity. Because remember, most of that garbage coming in winds up in Long Island, winds up in Maryland, winds up in Virginia. So if the gatekeeping counties in some of these areas, not all of them, some good counties in handful in New Mexico and Arizona, more obscure parts of Texas, but in the heavy traffic areas in Texas, there's a reason that they're going there because the population largely supports it. It's a dirty little secret. Very disappointing. So, um, so that's where we are today. And again, with the veto pen, Yesterday, Thomas Massey joined Chip Roy, and he he 
went to D.C. and objected to unanimous consent to pass the disaster aid bill. They're giving the president a second and a third chance to make demands on this disaster aid bill on the border. He won't do it. Why? A lot of you are asking me why the best I can give is he just doesn't get it. He doesn't understand it. Anything that requires one or two more steps to think about, he just doesn't get. And if you don't put it on his plate, he won't get it. And all these phony conservatives that refuse to put this stuff on his plate, they're complicit in this malpractice. I can't do this alone. I'm just one voice. I'm going to try the best I can. But I'm, I'm just telling you, like, do you understand that the number of whistleblower, like military people, intel people, border patrol people who would speak to a guy like Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity, knowing the depth of their audience and the power of their reach, if they, you know, if they're assuming they wouldn't be outed with what they're giving over? And they could give over to them. Do you know how many people would be willing to do that in, inside government and blow this issue sky high and inform the public on the severity of what's going on? That's the thing. In addition to a crisis, I, I say this all the time, in addition to a crisis of values, you have a crisis of intellect, crisis of entrepreneurship. They just, they just drone on every day. They don't reinvent the wheel. They don't come up with anything new. They don't try to learn more about the world. Expand your horizons. The left has plenty of people that will milk any event going on in the world that they think will lend credence to their policy outcomes. We don't have anyone doing that on our side. The president's the only one who can do this. The bully pulpit, the veto pen, and tons of executive actions. I don't mean like Obama executive actions. I don't mean lawlessness. I mean inherent executive authority, the military, or stuff that's long been given to him by a statute, like the power to designate groups as terrorists. Why? Muller, Muller, Muller. Every day, all the time. Just doesn't matter. Anyway, let me know what you want to know going on the border. Lots of other stuff going on in the interior. More MS-13 stuff. You know, Long Island just announced today, the Long Island police, that they're looking for 60 new detectives in Suffolk County, in uh, not Nassau County, just to deal with MS-13. Where do you think that came from? It came from this invasion. The problem is it's too subtle. They don't see them like entering Long Island. They enter Hidalgo County. But no one knows about it except for the locals. And too many of them don't care. Because the cartels already won. Because we already fundamentally transformed so many key strategic parts of this country. Boy, is there racism going on there. There's a lot to say. I mean, I have a, you know, my wife's brother-in-law her sister and brother-in-law live down in that area. They do, you know, he does something in the immigration world. And let me tell you, it's really rough on the kids. 
I mean, the kids want to just come back to the East Coast. They can't handle it there. And believe me, they're not racist. If anything, they probably vote Democrat. Okay, they're not, oh, oh, you know, they're not, oh, you know, what are you guys? No, they're they're like very PC and everything. But tolerance is only a one-way street, evidently, in this society. And it's permeated the political leadership of these counties. It's permeated areas of Border Patrol. Very disturbing. I don't really like talking about that. It's an uncomfortable thought. There's still a lot of very good people in Border Patrol, but there's that issue there. We need the military down at the border, not as chefs and lawyers and busboys, but to do everything we would have them do in Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen, Niger, Libya, Syria. They need to be doing that and more at our own border, and the president needs to build that case. Veto pen. Executive action. Bully pulpit. That is all he has. That's all he will have. The election is not a magic panacea. Nothing will change. But that's the best we can do, is speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help us God. God bless y'all. Till tomorrow. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.